that there's this image of a hacker or a coder that is like stereotypical like boy stuck in room and the only light is coming from his computer screen, but you don't really think about that as much when you think about girls. It's more of a stereotype in what's ingrained into our society. That was Alicia. I'm 17. And along with 40,000 other girls around the country, Alicia is enrolled in a summer program called Girls Who Code, a nonprofit organization dedicated to closing the gender gap in technology. Alicia is enrolled in their seven-week summer immersion program, which introduces high school girls to coding as well as to different job opportunities in tech. She also takes a computer science class at her high school. We have a Java class, but there were about three girls in my class and like 15 boys. So it was really intimidating. And it could also be kind of stressful because sometimes you could be scared to ask for help because you'd worried they'd be judgingly like, oh, she's just asking that because she's stupid and she's a girl and she shouldn't be here. Now, for the record, no one in the class actually said anything to Alicia up front. A lot of times it was more subtle. Group projects were very, like, clicky and, like, people didn't share information. But she is definitely not the only case of being one of very few female developers in an entire room of boys. Here's Erin on how she found the program. I learned about it actually from my robotics team. We have about 50 team members and only three of them are girls. 50? 50. 5-0. Yes. And Erin, well, she has been confronted about being one of the few girls on her team. A lot of the guys are really nice and really accepting, but a few of them are kind of, I guess, wary of the girls on the team and they don't really like to be shown wrong. I had a guy on the electrical team who told me girls shouldn't be at all in mechanics or electronical or anything to do with engineering. Um, needless to say, he did not stay on the team long. What's most unsettling is that Alicia and Aaron's experiences are not unique, not for high schoolers and not for fully grown professionals. Women make up just 18% of the computer science majors in the U.S., a huge drop compared to the peak of 37% back in 1984. And at the same time, women's participation in the other sciences has gone up in the last few decades. You can see the rise of women graduating with degrees in biology, earth and ocean sciences, psychology, and the physical sciences. So what happened to women's participation in computer science over the last 30 years? On this podcast, we look into the many stories data can tell us. But in the case of women in computing, there are a whole lot of experiences that the data doesn't capture. Like the number of business deals that take place over drinks at a bar, where women may not feel welcome. Or the average length of time it takes for women to get a promotion as compared to their male colleagues. Or the number of times where the sole woman in the room feels too uncomfortable to speak up or ask a question because she's visibly different from everyone else. So I'll ask again, what happened to women's participation in computer science over the last 30 years? We'll answer that question with all of the stories you don't see in the numbers in today's episode of... Especially Big Data! (laughs) I'm Alex Geller, and thanks for listening.
Throughout the late 60s and 70s, the number of women studying computer science was growing faster than the number of men. Oddly enough, the drop-off for women in computing occurred around the same time that personal computers started hitting the marketplace. The IBM PC came out in 1982, Apple released its Macintosh in 84, and some argue that marketing strategies were geared primarily towards men around that time. Computers used to be a mystery to me, but that was before Jerry. Jerry's my computer man. Elliot's at work on a book report using Scripsit on Radio Shack's Color Computer 3. It hooks up to his TV. And Jeff's at his Radio Shack Color Computer 3 playing the newest football game. Using an Apple II is very easy. The only hard part is getting your kid away from it. Of course, if all else fails, there's one last thing you can try. Get him an Apple of his own. Now, I'm really glad for Jerry, the computer guy, and that Elliot and Jeff found after-school activities on their computers, and that the father-son duo decided to get another Macintosh. But where are all the women in these ads? Or the mother-daughter duos? I know advertising isn't the sole reason for the drop of female computer scientists, but it seems to have played at least a minor role. Circumstances within academic and professional environments certainly haven't helped retain women either. Actually, one of the biggest drop-offs for girls occurs right around middle school. 66% of girls between ages 6 to 12 report being interested or enrolled in computing programs. But those numbers more than half for girls once they hit 13. By freshman year in college, just 4% of women report being interested or enrolled in CS. And to be honest, the issues that Alicia and Aaron dealt with in their high school programs aren't so far off from some of the challenges faced by women 10, 20, or more than 30 years their senior. My name is Lauren McCarthy, and I'm an artist and a software developer. And I'm also an assistant professor at UCLA Design Media Arts program. Lauren is also the creator of a library called P5JS which is a toolkit that makes coding more accessible to artists, designers, educators, and beginning programmers. She's a known leader in her field. Her P5 work is devoted to expanding the boundaries of inclusion. And still, I was surprised to hear how similar some of her experiences were with other girls and women that I spoke with. Seeing myself kind of doubt my own qualifications, that's where I feel like it manifests the most in this kind of subtle way. It's, it's not like people say you're a woman, you don't know what you're doing, get out of here. But I do see when I'm working on any kind of like online software development, open source situation, there are these very subtle moments where someone might question something and you wonder if it has to do with your gender or not. I know we all doubt our abilities at times, but the fact that gender even comes up as a possible explanation is, well, a really troubling testament to where we stand in the 21st century. Like 17-year-old Alicia, Lauren, who's been working in the field for close to a decade, also mentioned these nearly imperceptible comments and actions that made her question her qualifications. I was having dinner one night with some colleagues, and one person mentioned to me, like, I was up for this job, but then, you know, they couldn't hire me because they had this quota of women that they had to hire, and so it went to the woman in the running. And initially I said, oh, yeah, I think that's what happened to me. Luckily, I'm the woman. And then I caught myself, and I was like, no, wait, that's not what I think at all. 
And what an assumption on this other person's part that you didn't get the job just because they were trying to exercise some quota of woman hiring and there isn't the possibility that maybe she's just more qualified as a person. This whole notion of filling a quota, well, it's irritating, especially if you're among the group of people who is underrepresented, whether that's women, people of color, transgender, differently abled. Lauren and many of the other women I spoke with didn't want to be at the table because they filled a quota. They wanted to be at the table because they earned their seat. If you're trying to include more women or more anyone, you've got to talk to them and listen and understand how to best invite them. I know some women that will not accept an invitation of extra travel support or whatever because they feel like, oh, I'm just being brought in as a token woman and I want to be accepted for my qualifications. And I mean, I have no doubt that they're being invited because of their qualifications. But like in my case, if you want to pay for my plane ticket, that's cool. <laughs> I'll take it. So I think what you really have to do if you are having an event or have some project and you want to invite someone in that is not necessarily part of the majority is to see what is the way that would make them feel comfortable or what are the things that are standing in their way that made them not already want to sign up or be a part of it and how do you change those things. It's not just about women being more proactive or assertive or stepping up to the plate when an opportunity arises. There is also a responsibility of the majority to meet those who are less represented halfway, or more than halfway really. If I'm having a developer's conference and I want more women there, it's not enough for me to be like, oh, okay, we've got two women and 30 men now, and so that's good. We've got two women. You know, it needs to be like 50% women, or it needs to be even more than that, because we're pushing against what has been the norm. And so to have an impact on that, I think you have to be sort of drastic. There's not much progress that's going to be made by doing the bare minimum to make change. It's got to feel uncomfortable for everyone because we're doing something different. I love this point about getting everyone out of their comfort zones. You know, it's not just about one group pushing their boundaries to welcome another. Everyone needs to come together, swim a bit in the uncomfortable space, and learn that their neighbors are not so very different from themselves. The thing is, even when you do make it through the front door and you're given free reign to try what you want to try and to say what you want to say, there are plenty of cases where gender manages to become relevant when it shouldn't. Lauren developed a project called Follower, where users could hire a person, or Lauren in this case, to follow them for a day. There was some women that I followed, but primarily the applicants were mostly men. And this made sense to me because, like, as a woman, I... I'm already sort of conscious of, am I in a safe situation? Is anyone following me? So I could see not wanting to play up that dynamic. But one of the funniest things was this one reporter wrote up this article, and when it came out, the headline was, the world's creepiest social network is just some woman following you. And, <laughs> you know, it's clickbait, obviously, but it felt to me like there was so much embedded in there that was sort of glossed over. Like, yeah, it's just some woman, which is kind of silly and laughable, but what are you implying here? Well, that the opposite would be terrifying, right? That if it's a man, which it is a lot of the time following a woman, 
it, it was strange to me that it could be kind of turned around and turned into like a, a joke. But then also just this headline, just some woman. I tried to think of when I had ever seen a headline anywhere that included the phrase, just some man, and I, I couldn't. So much is implied by our choice of language. The word just is so loaded because it's used here to distinguish and also to deflate the presence of a certain group. There are so many words that historically have associations with feminine or masculine traits. For instance, if I say the word sensitive, I imagine most would connect it with one gender. Versus if I say the word aggressive, most might affiliate it with another. But really, shame on all you dividers out there, because sensitive and aggressive are gender neutral. As is the word just. I spoke with a lot of people for this episode, and I was struck by how commonly specific words were used to contrast one gender from the other. Like authoritative versus accommodating, or loud versus timid, but the expectations we bring to each adjective are less connected to gender and more closely tied with being in the position of the majority or the minority. Aren't most people more likely to be soft-spoken or timid when they're the odd person out? A lot of times the setup around open source development is very, well, it's a lot of men. You kind of have to elbow your way in and shout for you to be heard and for your position to be accepted especially when you're first starting, because people don't know who you are. And I just realized that, you know, that wasn't my inclination at all. And I think it's not what feels comfortable for a lot of women or for a lot of people that are underrepresented in the open source community. Elbowing your way in, it's something I heard more than once. And I know it's something that comes up often with the open source community, but I was surprised at how often I heard it from the women I spoke with. Leslie is a programmer at our studio, and prior to working at Fathom, she worked for a defense research lab. Now, to be clear, Leslie sees herself as being pretty fortunate throughout her academic and professional pursuits. I never felt really disenfranchised as a woman in a male-dominated field. It was always just a reality, and, you know, I sort of, like, worked within those, I wouldn't even call them constraints, just in that environment. I appreciate her perspective, because for all the things that are difficult, she still feels she has it pretty good. That said, there are things that bother her about the whole gender discussion. I find it more alienating when people are constantly pointing out that I'm the minority, and they say, oh, what is your opinion on X, Y, and Z as a woman? And, you know, my opinion as a woman is the same as my opinion as a person. I would prefer to, you know, be viewed not necessarily like a woman in computer science, but as a computer scientist. I'm struggling with the duality here. There is a two-sided nature that comes with the act of identifying personal characteristics like gender, race, sexual orientation, ableness, and so forth. As in, yes, I'm proud of who I am, and I am proud to be a woman, but it's not the only thing that defines me. And I certainly don't want it to serve as the sole lens from which my work and thoughts are viewed. At the same time, that doesn't mean my being a woman shouldn't be addressed at all. Back at the lab, 
Leslie was a part of a team that did rapid prototyping and engineering, and then took their products out into the world for field testing. In one of her groups, she was the only woman in a team of 10 to 15 men. The field tests were probably the place where I felt most disadvantaged or out of place as a woman. And it was for these really crazy reasons. Like, there was no place to go to the bathroom, you know? <laughs> like, there's no porta potty there. It, it was stuff like that. And then, like, the social hour after the tests were over, it was just, you know, you'd go out, like, to a bar and drink a lot. And I don't know, it just wasn't my thing. And you can imagine, like, how it would be, you know, like, maybe a one, woman wouldn't want to, like, be in that situation. Clearly, there were elements of the working environment that made it less welcoming to women. As in, nobody on the organizing team stopped to think what kind of people could actually participate in the environment they'd set up. And further, the group dynamic, again, was more accommodating to those who felt comfortable speaking up, or elbowing their way in. And in those field testing situations, I was just pushed to the side constantly because I didn't want to speak up. I didn't want to inject myself into something and I didn't want to, I guess, inconvenience anyone else to try and like get in there and learn how to do it. But like, that's how you do it. You have to sort of elbow your way in, you know, like come in with a screwdriver and say, everybody get out of my way. I want to do this. And um, I just never got that opportunity to like learn how to do those really basic things that I was interested in. I don't know, maybe the people I was with, they would have given me more of a chance to, you know, like try some stuff and maybe make mistakes. But I think it was just immediately assumed that I couldn't do some of the things because I didn't look like somebody that knew how to operate a power drill or whatever. <laughs> For the record, I've seen Leslie handle a power drill. Actually, she built an entire climbing wall along the interior of her apartment. Still, when all is said and done, she's not the kind of person to blame her gender when things get tough. The reality is it's difficult for everybody. And, um, you know, everybody has to deal with certain challenges. And at some point you have to realize that the playing field isn't always going to be level and you have to, you know, like keep your head up and work hard and just kind of roll with the punches. So a couple of years ago, I went to the Grace Hopper Celebration of Women in Computing, which is this really big annual conference. And there are female computer scientists from all over the world that come together. It was really inspiring to like see all those women there in one place and see how different the landscape was whenever you had all women that were like really interested in computer science. But they had one panel where someone was interviewing the CEO of Microsoft and they asked him a question about what you have to do in order to ask for a raise or be promoted. And I'm sort of paraphrasing, I can't, but he said that you have to keep your head down and work hard and eventually your, you know, honest hard work is going to pay off. And there was such a huge backlash that he said that because everyone was like, oh, CEO of Microsoft tells women to keep their heads down and keep working. And that wasn't what he was trying to say at all. He was just giving like general advice. But that was the problem that led this whole thing to blow up in the first place. That Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, was giving generally good advice. That working hard will generate positive outcomes. 
but he made his point to a non-general audience. And the person who was interviewing him was asking for advice specifically for women. What I knew, but I think most of the people in the audience didn't know, was that Satya did not intend his advice for women versus men. He intended his advice for employees. But, of course, it was taken as he's telling women to behave like good girls and not ask for something. And it went viral, and it literally was all over the world within four hours. That was Maria Clave, the woman interviewing Satya at the 2014 Grace Hopper Conference. Maria is the first female president of Harvey Mudd College and has been so for the last 10 years. She was also the first female dean of engineering at Princeton, the first female dean of science at the University of British Columbia, their first female head of computer science, and the list of firsts goes on. She was also on the Microsoft board of directors for six years. Now, what most people, including Maria, did not know at the time of the interview is that Microsoft has an entire system devoted to reducing the gender gap in pay. The reason they have no gender gap in pay is because they monitor it really carefully. These are data-driven companies, and they make sure that every time a round of raises is being recommended, that they go through, and if it's introducing you know, discrepancies at any particular level, they fix it before the raises are actually given. So at that time, women were earning 99.75 on average percent compared to the men at a particular level in Microsoft. And with that in mind, Satya's response to Maria's question felt slightly less out of line. Microsoft is pretty intentional about addressing the gender gap in wages. And given that environment, maybe women really could just trust the system. But without that context, most women at the conference completely disagreed. The audience was largely kind of taken aback by what he said, and the person that, was, that asked the question, she made some sort of rebuttal. And again, that person was Maria. So I said, with great respect, Satya, this is going to be one area in which I respectfully disagree, because I know how often it is that I've talked to a woman who realizes she's not being paid competitively, and here's the right advice for how to handle this, which is basically to do your homework, find out what a competitive salary would be, and then do some role play with a close friend about how you would ask for it, and then go ahead and do it. And that's when people applauded. For the record, a lot of good was actually generated from this moment. You might even argue that Satya's slip-up created a learning moment for leaders all over the tech industry. So first of all, I sent out an apology within a few hours every employee in Microsoft for having gotten the answer wrong. And then he came back to Microsoft and he essentially said, look, if I could screw up an answer that badly, probably some of the other people on the senior leadership team could as well. And so we're going to have a lot of diversity training. And he's become... I mean, he was always a champion for diversity, which is one of the reasons that I lobbied so hard to get him to come to Hopper, because I I think he's really wonderful. But he became more of a champion for diversity after that, because I think what he understood is that even though he meant the advice to be independent of gender, that it can be easily interpreted as being a gender-related piece of advice, and that as CEO of a major company, He needs to make sure that his language doesn't have those kinds of applications. 
This is where we see things starting to come together. Because this one slip up, this one moment where the CEO of Microsoft could have answered a question far more sensitively than he did, it caused some personal reflection. And that reflection sparked a wider conversation and the conversation caused action. I felt badly about having put Sasha in a situation where he made that mistake. But on the other hand, I feel like he came through as a thoughtful, reflective leader who learns and who really is a champion for diversity. Maria and I spoke a bit about how people often forget to mention the progress that's been made. Like the fact that at Harvey Mudd, they're graduating more female computer scientists than male. Or that large companies like Accenture decided to adjust the language on their careers page and managed to increase their female hiring from 30% to 42% in just four months. And these changes to make tech environments more welcoming, they don't need to be expensive. And they don't need to be difficult. But they do need to be deliberate. Here's Lauren again. You know, I didn't set out to make a code library. It wasn't on my bucket list. But I came out of it feeling like I could and that I didn't need someone else to, like, teach me or guide me every step of the way. Chandler McWilliams said the best thing he learned he could do was just be quiet and listen. Listen to the person that needs support and then from there figure out how to support them instead of trying to you know, start shouting about something. And so I think that that type of support is easy to overlook because it's not, you know, pouring tons of money into something or making a big show of something. But it was just absolutely crucial and totally changed my perspective and, and opened up a lot of possibilities. Lauren became a leader in her field because she was entrusted with the freedom to do what she does really well. I want to end with a note on how this episode started. To be honest, I was a bit hesitant to dive into the topic because to me it felt a little trite. And I call myself a feminist. The thing is, I know there aren't enough women pursuing math and computer science. And I know that of those who do, they don't stay in the field long and most aren't earning equal wages to men in their same positions. But what I realized after talking to just one person is that the only thing that's trite about this whole situation is how long it's taking for the numbers to change. Because the stories behind those numbers, well, they're all different. We can keep saying women in tech want this or women in tech demand that. But a lot of women want a lot of different things. And the more we categorize people into group A or group B, whether that's gender, race, sexual orientation, or the differently abled, the more we neglect the needs and perspectives of individuals. And if we could all just hold up the microphone and listen a little more often, maybe learn a thing or two, well, maybe there will be less of a need to talk about inequalities moving forward. Thanks to Lauren McCarthy for chatting with me all the way from Brisbane, to Maria Clave, Leslie Watkins, Olivia Glennon, Akamai's Girls Who Code group in Boston, and the many others who volunteered to share their perspective for this episode. 
If you're interested in our work at Fathom, shoot us a note at hello at fathom.info. Otherwise, visit our site at www.fathom.info. I'm Alex Geller, and in the words of my new 17-year-old friends, remember to... Thanks for listening. Bye.